What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris Boutte, and today I had the honor of talking with Shira Frankel about her now best-selling book that she co-authored with Cecilia Kang. And this book is called An Ugly Truth, and it's all about Facebook's journey for domination, right? So Shira and Cecilia are both journalists. They've written a lot and covered a lot on Facebook and they're tech writers uh, uh, for the New York Times. And this book was really interesting. So as many of you know, um, Facebook isn't always making the best decisions. Sometimes they put profit over data privacy and ethics and so many other things. And in this book, they... They did such a deep dive and they interviewed current and former employees. Like I thought that there was gonna be nothing new in this book because I keep up to date on all this stuff, but they covered a ton. So uh, when I was able to speak with Shira for this podcast interview, I was able to ask some questions about her experience talking with these employees, but also with her as a journalist, I was able to talk about some of the ethics and questions around you know, free speech and censorship and what news should go out there and what Facebook could do better. And just some questions that I think we should all be asking since social media is so integrated with our lives. You know what I mean? But yeah, we had a magnificent conversation. And like I said, this book has been blowing up and taking off. So I'm very, very glad that she was able to take a little bit of time to sit down and chat with me about the book. So I will be linking uh, Shira and Cecilia's social media down below along with a link to the book. Make sure you go check it out. But yeah, while you're down there, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter. I have a lot of cool upcoming episodes and I, I tweet about them. I post them on Instagram, all that stuff. So make sure you're following me as well. But anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with Shira Frankel about her brand new book that she co-authored with Cecilia Kang, An Ugly Truth. Good morning, Shira. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I am amazing. So thank you for taking some time to come on the podcast. Since the book launched, it's been crazy. So you and Cecilia wrote a book called An Ugly Truth. So it's about, it's a really deep dive into Facebook and all the goings-ons and all the controversy and everything. So first, can you talk about like what, what inspired this? Because you two did a ton of work on this. So what made you two decide to get together and write this book? Well, you know, as reporters, we found ourselves writing the same article over and over again, where something awful happened, some mistake was made and Facebook executives apologized and vowed to do better. And it felt like there was much more to tell. We had so much in our notebooks that we couldn't use mm. in our articles. Um, just color behind the meetings, color behind the decisions. And, and we found ourselves just, you know, really wanting to get people inside the rooms where those decisions were made. Why were those mistakes happening over and over again? Mm -hmm. And I think we were like ourselves, honestly, shocked at when we started doing more reporting for the book, um, 
sort of how how many warnings had gone unheeded how many mm-hmm. times executives have sat in a room with somebody telling them something bad's going to happen unless we x you know y c um and that test was really telling mm-hmm. yeah and and something that you know i i thought really separated your book from you know some of the others and stories you two talked to a ton of former employees uh, were some of them current that are like remaining anonymous and stuff like that. But you talk yeah. to like a bunch of people within the organization. Um, a lot of them seem to really appreciate, like I see you two, you know, retweet people who are reading the book. Like they seemed really appreciative that their voices were heard. So how, what was that experience like? Like talking with them about stories that haven't been out there and like, yeah, and all that that you put in the book. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Of the more than 400 people we interviewed for the book, the vast majority still work at Facebook. Mm. And so I think that's important for people to know this is not an accounting by disgruntled ex-employees who want to trash their former company. Most of them still work there and they really care about Facebook. They really want it to do better. Um, You know, one person who I remember speaking to early on in the book process said to me, this feels like therapy. (laughs) I feel like I'm (laughs) finally, I'm like with a therapist and I'm getting it all off my chest. And it really, I think a lot of people had that kind of cathartic experience where they had seen things that really troubled them. They had made mistakes themselves that they had held on to and carried and felt really awful about. And this was a chance to make a lot of that public, um, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of them have wanted. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would love your opinion on this because as somebody, you know, obviously on the outside and me just kind of looking at this, I, and I know a lot of people wonder this with employees working at an organization that's, you know, unethical or making these mistakes and everything like that. And you just said a majority of the people you talk to work within the company, right? So me, I'm sitting here and I, and I think it's easy for us to judge and be like, why would you work for such a terrible company? But you two discuss this a little bit in the book, like, you know, people trying to change from the trying to change the organization from the inside but also in your book you document how many people were bringing up ethical issues and things like that so after talking with this many current and former employees what are have your views shifted or what are your thoughts on people working for a company that has a lot of things wrong with it and is so massive Well, you know, I think a lot of them really hope to change things from within and they have this idea of, well, if we leave, who's going to be left that Mm -hmm. argues for these things and who has a moral compass and who wants to do the right thing. And ultimately, I think they're they're right in that they say, look, Facebook is a trillion dollar company. Mm -hmm. It's so far ahead of all of its competitors that it's not realistic that we're going to somehow shut the company down tomorrow and move on and start over at another company about to do better. We've got to clean up the mess that we made is a phrase that I hear often from Mm. Facebook employees. Um, And they have the money and they have the resources. And honestly, if they wanted to, they, they could have the talent. I think a lot of them hope that by participating in this book, Facebook will recognize that they need to hire more voices from the outside. And and some of those people that have been most critical about the company, like why not have meetings with them and bring them in and say, Mm -hmm. you know, help us do better. Yeah, yeah. And and you discuss in the book how, you know, Mark and and Cheryl, that kind of, you know, relationship of them running it. And, you know, and uh, there, there was a period where something kind of flipped in Mark where he was taking this kind of like authoritarian, like, here's what I want to do. And here, you know what I mean? And and that's one of the difficult parts of these, you know, billionaires where we're hoping that this one person at the very top of the pyramid is making smart, ethical decisions and thinking all this stuff through. So, One of my main questions for you too is, and this, you know, I I don't even think we have enough time in a week to discuss this, but as I'm reading it and seeing the different 
issues coming up. I'm curious, like if, if Facebook could do just one thing to make things better, like tomorrow, magic wand, here you go. What, what would it be? Would it be hiring a million new employees or changing some terms of service or, or, you know, or what, what, what would really help? Um, God, that's a good question. <laughs> I, um, I think that structurally there is something, um, something that they could think about in terms of, is it right to have one person with absolute power? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that, obviously that quote, everyone knows, you know, absolute yeah. power, absolutely corrupts. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has structured the company in a way that he doesn't just hold the majority of voting shares, but that there's really no oversight of his power or his decision making. As you mentioned, he has a meeting in 2018 where he declares himself a wartime leader, mm-hmm. um, where he basically assumes even more control and responsibility for decisions. I think one of the most powerful points, parts of this book is this watching the slow progression of Mark increasingly making big decisions and not really taking the advice of Sheryl Sandberg or other people who mm-hmm. advocate for him to do something else. Um, and so I would love if Mark Zuckerberg had given me an interview for the book, I would have loved to have asked him, you know, should you in fact, you know, give your board more power? Should you, you know, create checks on your own power and decision-making? Because ultimately you are not an expert in free speech. Mm -hmm. You are not an expert in a lot of these policy things. You are not an expert on geopolitics and a lot of Mm -hmm. your problems in other countries have come down to maybe not understanding countries like India or the Philippines or Myanmar, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that it is healthy for us to recognize our limitations. Um, I think Mark is not surrounded by people who do that for him. Yeah. And I think he very much, he's in that Silicon Valley ethos. I, I live out here in the Bay and, and yeah. you know, it's, it's part of that mentality of like, oh, well, the founder is the genius and he created this and he must hold all power. And like, I think Mark really internalized that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would, would love to pose that question to him. Yeah, and and it's interesting that you bring that up. There's diff- definitely this interesting kind of like halo effect with these, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and people in Silicon Valley where it's like, oh, they created this great technology. Therefore, right. they must also, you know, know a lot about ethics and, you know, international relations and what's going on in other countries. And, and it's like, no, maybe they just made a really good technology and we should kind of diversify the decision-making and stuff. And as you as you discuss that, um, you know, I've, I've brought a lot of people on the podcast has to discuss their books and something I'm learning more and more is when it comes to knowledge and making decisions like it takes a group it shouldn't just be one person because you need all this input and then when you discuss you know just what's going on in other countries I don't know if you've uh read the book Silicon Values from Jillian York Yeah. yeah like her book opened my eyes to all these other things in different countries I'm like oh wow and and yeah and I I guess that leads me into the next question I have for you about free speech. So you're a journalist and historically, you know, one of the reasons we, it, we have like freedom of speech and, you know, a freedom of press and stuff is because journalists have been censored. And this week at the time of recording or within the last week, they've been talking a lot about COVID misinformation and stuff like that being spread on Facebook, uh, Biden and, uh, you know, his, his team are saying like, yeah, you know, Facebook, you know, there's some of the reasons for this and it gets tricky. And I don't think many people understand how tricky it gets. So what are your thoughts on regulating speech when it comes to misinformation? And do you have an answer? Is it something that you're still kind of working through yourself as a journalist? I absolutely am working through it. I think uh, anyone who cares about that space, including Jillian, who, who wrote that fantastic book, is working through it. Um, 
you know, Renee DeResta, who we quote in our book, has a great line, which is that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And mm-hmm. I remember the moment I heard that line because I thought that's it. That is that she's encapsulated it. Um, it is not about freedom of speech. It is about how that speech is amplified. If you put 20 people in a public square, but you give one of them a megaphone, would you argue that they all have the same speech, right? You know, you would say, well, that megaphone is drowning out everything else. We have amplified one Mm -hmm. voice above all else. Facebook's algorithms do that. They amplify emotive content. Mm. And so when Facebook makes that argument, well, you know, because of freedom of speech, we don't want to take down X, Y, and Z. um, You know, I think what many academics and thinkers in this space say, but you've amplified that. You're not, it's not that you're not taking it down. It's that anti-vaccine misinformation is amplified. And for for many years, those groups ran wild on your platforms. Your own algorithms pushed people into these groups. And so you gave them that megaphone and now you're going to make an argument that you don't know what to do. You know, it's, it's a much more nuanced um, Mm -hmm. topic and and really it's, it's a, it's a new problem, right? It's a problem that Facebook created. Yeah. And, and yeah, and so I've I've been a YouTube creator for you know quite a while now, and and something I've noticed just you know when when you're uh, YouTube dive into you know how the algorithm was created and keeping people on and you know they invented the like button and all these other things to keep people engaged and everything like that, and even on YouTube it's all about engagement, keeping people on because you're the product. They're, they want advertisers in front of you and all that, so it really feels like the algorithms are like this core part of the issue and what's going out, what's hitting more people, because it's human nature that we love confirmation bias. So when something agrees with us, we're going to like it and share it. And then the algorithm's just like, oh, people like and share this, even if it's completely incorrect. So, so that's, that's, that's one of the weird things. Like, I don't know if you've thought about this, but I'm curious, uh, like what you think, like, it seems like since they're 100% about making money, like everything comes back to making money. Right. right. You show advertisers, hey, we keep people on. This is the average duration. So is that uh, uh, an issue with just our the way capitalism is set up? Like, is there a way? Because how do I go to Mark right. Zuckerberg and say, hey, here's a more ethical way, but you're going to lose billions of dollars. Right. You know? and, and I would make the argument that maybe it's OK if you're a trillion dollar company to lose billions. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe you say, I'll take that hit. I'll take the hit. I'll lose that billion. But um I'll still have my trillion, you know, yeah. I, 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 um, I would say that uh, Facebook's business model is really predicated on that idea of keeping you online as much as possible and scrolling. And, and those are numbers that they look at closely. Um, and in order to do that, as you know, we've discussed already, the content needs to be emotive, but they've tested different features. We, we get into this in the last chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, they've tested different features of what their newsfeed looks like if they promote more co- you know, content by, by verified news sources. Mm-hmm. So around the time of the elections, they decided, look, this is a really important moment in democracy. We're going to try and boost sources of information that are vetted. So whether that's Fox or CNN, whatever it is that they decided was, was a news source that didn't... Um, didn't rank low on their scale of of Mm -hmm. veracity. They were going to, they were going to give it a leg up and they saw a huge difference. And there's things like that. I mean, maybe because I'm a journalist, I naturally gravitate towards that. I'm, 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 but you know, it's not just that, you know, they've tested out different features about, um, you know, how they rank things. And 
for a long time, they've decided friends and family kind of rise above all else. But if friends and family are sharing content that comes from yeah. conspiracy theories or QAnon or whatnot, like, is that what should be ranked highest in your newsfeed? Because it, yeah. it again, in, in individual, it creates a feeling of this is what people are talking about and what people think. If you log on to Facebook and the first six, seven posts you see are QAnon, you're inclined to think, well, this is what all my friends are thinking about and talking about all my, you know, everyone's joining QAnon and I should join it too. Mm-hmm. And that's not probably reflective of your friends. It's just reflective of what content is most emotive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- absolutely. Especially, you know, when it comes to QAnon and things like that, because you see it, it kind of clusters together. I recently had uh, Mike Rothschild on here to talk about his new book on QAnon. And then I had um, uh, two psychologists, uh, Dr. Sophia Moskalenko and Mia Bloom. They wrote a book on QAnon and the psychology. And and you see how much confirmation bias plays into that and this uh, idea of, you know, just not knowing, especially with the COVID pandemic, and we're looking for answers. And it clusters. So if you get a, a small area where, you know, there's economic issues or whatever, they're looking for answers and a conspiracy right. seems to make sense. So, Absolutely. so I, I'm curious too, because you've, you've talked to people who work with the algorithm and inside Facebook and everything. And uh, as someone who comes from YouTube, I empathize with the company because there's so much content and i think it was the verge maybe a couple of years ago where they they talked mm-hmm. about like uh moderators like being traumatized from having to vet like am- animal abuse videos and stuff just disgusting stuff people were trying to upload so they're dealing with that so okay. uh i asked jillian this when she was on too like do you think it's even feasible to vet that much content or do they need to figure out how to make the algorithms do this better yeah, I mean, I think it has to be both, right? They already know that their algorithms aren't great on hate speech. The algorithms work well <laughs> on um, things that are that are easier to figure out, like nudity. Sorry, but you know that's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. fairly clear for their algorithms. They've still stumbled a little bit on that, but it's clearer for the algorithms. Yeah. Hate speech is so specific to cultures and to language. What is mm. hate speech in one language is not in another, and even within a certain country it is very specific to communities. And so it's a matter of scaling up the human moderators and getting their AI systems smarter. Yeah, yeah. And that that's what it, it, it seems like too, where they need uh, specific moderators per country. And then and then something I worry about is, you know, the bias of the moderators, especially if you have, uh, you know, a conflict within a country. And, you know, for example, in the United States, someone from down south might disagree with something like you and I believe with you being in the Bay, I'm in Las Vegas and, you know, <laughs> things like that. So it's it's tricky. And I think just when I'm looking at all these things, and I, I think about, you know, growing up when the internet was taking off with like America online and everything right before social media, I see it as a net positive, but there's so many things that we have to tackle. And a lot of them just seems like we have to do some trial and error. But in your opinion, do you think, well, I, I think you've kind of answered it, but but has, has Facebook or even other social media platforms just not been doing nearly enough? Is it just kind of an afterthought to them from what you've researched? Yeah, I mean, I think initially it was unfortunately something of an afterthought. I will say that they've scaled up and they're doing more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for me, one of the most powerful chapters in the book was Myanmar. Um, and mm. we show how even the height of people pointing out its problems around hate speech and someone literally coming to their office and saying, yes, it, it's possible for a genocide to happen. They only have one content moderator working in, in Burmese. What? 
this is a country where over 100 languages are spoken. That's crazy. And they have one and, and, and they have hired more since then. But that was such a damning moment because they have people, you know, people's hands are up in the air going, look over here, like something yeah. awful is happening. And uh, the company smiles and nods, but ultimately doesn't do much. And, you know, yeah. I, I I often get into these conversations with Facebook um spokespeople where I say, well, how many moderators do you have in India around the elections mm-hmm. or in the Philippines? Or they never give answers. But I I am sure that whatever we we whatever answer we were given, the per capita ratio of, of you know Facebook moderator speaking that language to active actual user would be shocking. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I don't know, right? They've they've decided to push into all these countries. And so I yeah. think they need to also uh-huh. be responsible. But at the same time, do they hire a million people? Like, what what is the answer here? Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great question. You know, it's uh, it's just you know when when they are expanding, it should, you know, obviously money is a big priority, but they, should they be researching it, see what's going on in this country, really sit down and say, hey, what are the worst possibilities that could happen in this specific area? What are the conflicts? What are the you know issues? But you know, a lot of them they're just like, hey, we'll we'll put it out there, make some money, advertise to these people, and then we'll kind of. We'll kind of figure it out. Um, right. So you you are a busy woman. So I got a couple more questions for okay. you. Just a couple more. So the first thing I think, the first thing I think when I see a book like yours, and I know you've heard about this because I've seen you you talk about it on Twitter and stuff. When I see this, and I don't know if it's just because I'm in my bubble, and I'm sure you are too as a tech journalist, but I I'm like. What do people not know already? Do people not understand that they're collecting our data and uh, showing us what they want us to see and we're in information bubbles and all this? Like when uh, The Social Dilemma came out on Netflix last summer and it like blew up, I was sitting here watching it with my girlfriend. I'm like, do people not realize this is happening? So so I'm sure you've thought about this even while writing. So like in the grand scheme of things, do do you think the majority of people still don't know all these things going on and all the issues? So I will say this, I'm a reporter who reports on Facebook a lot. So I probably know more than the average person. And when I wrote this book, I found things I didn't know. There were Mm -hmm. multiple things I hadn't known about. You know, I think that we want to believe that these decisions are made with a lot of foresight and a lot of expertise. And it was shocking. And I think one thing our book shows is like how often these decisions are super ad hoc. It's 12 people in a room figuring things out um, yeah. as they go. It's on the fly. It's, it's it's incredibly reactive. And I think that will really surprise people as they read the book, that moment of like, oh God, they're just, they're humans and they're making these human decisions that affect all of us. But it's not that anyone in the room really knows what they're doing. Yeah. So with, with the target audience of this who were you two hoping to reach with this is it like uh grandmas who just kind of post stuff on facebook about having a beautiful day and covid conspiracies or is it like college kid like who is the the primary demographic like if you had the ideal person that's going to pick this book up and read it who would it be I mean, look, I'm an author, so there's what three billion people using Facebook. I think three <laughs> billion people should buy our. No, I'm, 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 I'm half kidding. Yeah. Um, we wanted to write this book so that everyone, from an expert on Facebook to just a novice user who uses their product and wants to understand it, would read it and like it. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> you know, I was really. I was really just surprised and awed by the reviews because a lot of the early reviews we got of the book were written by people who were experts on Facebook. And I was scared. Oh God, this person's like me. They've written everything about Facebook. Yeah. They're going to be bored. And, and they weren't. And they found it illuminating and they found it you know, insightful. And so that was like 
the best compliment I could get. I'm still waiting to hear from my parents who are very novice Facebook users that I gave them the book. They haven't finished it yet. Um, yeah. they're, slow, they're slow readers, but I'm curious what they think. I mean, I hope that they like it as well as people. I mean, my dad already called me and said, I didn't know that. And he's like in chapter one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that anyone who sort of understands how pervasive this platform mm-hmm. is in our lives would hopefully enjoy reading the book. Yeah, and just just to quickly compliment, you, you two on this book. I use I read hundreds of nonfiction books. They're usually very like science or psychology or data. Or, and I'm just like, I don't like stories. But you two, <laughs> you're, you're very, very good writers. And like, I was just into the story <laughs> of it all. And it all flowed. So you two did excellent. So you reached a guy like me, who typically doesn't read those types That's of awesome. books. So so yeah, and and like you, you mentioned, as you started to research, like I learned these little, it filled in some gaps for me, even as somebody who like, has watched Zuckerberg testify in front of Congress and everything like that. So last question for you. Um, and by the way, everybody listening, I'm going to be linking uh, you and Cecilia's social media down below. But you've been like Facebook has been on this like, like damage control since the launch of your book. And I don't even know how much you're able to talk about like legally, but like, you know, from what, you know, what's out there, like what, what has kind of been going on in the last week since the book launched Facebook's response? Like, I don't know, have they, have they said anything publicly or is it just their army of PR people and lawyers kind of doing damage control? Like, are they, are they really worried? Like what's, what's Um, happened like? It's funny. They kind of, they did <laughs> in the book, we document this pattern of delay, deny, deflect, which they do mm-hmm. in PR. And then we kind of watch them do it in real time to our book. So, you know, <laughs> for, we fact check this whole book with them before mm. we published. We spent three months fact checking. Oh, wow. They knew every, it was, you know, we're journalists, we're professionals. I keep, I still write about Facebook in my day job with the New York Times. So I had to maintain a relationship. So I was we went above and beyond to make sure they knew everything that was going to be in this book before it was published. And yet right before we had some uh, interesting stalling and delaying tactics, but you know, they published a blog post to their own employees the week before the book came out saying it was going to be damaging and it was going to make news and kind of warning them about it. And then when the book actually came out, they came out, I'm sorry, but it's an absurd statement that there have been 367 books written about Facebook. And this was just another one and that it was boring and that it rehashed what everybody. And I read that and I just thought, this is, you know, I'm sorry, but do an Amazon search. There have been less than 10 books written about Facebook. And that's only if you include the ones that are like, you know, thinking books, like academics that are writing big, big ideas books. Mm -hmm. There's been only a handful of books that are actually about the company and and how, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. So even in my, my like most generous calculations, it's not 367. And then I found out, was it a couple of days ago that one of their own employees posted online, um, are we spreading misinformation? Because I can't find 367 <laughs> books about us, <laughs> which I just, I was like, oh, bless. Like that is, um, yeah, I can't say that, but I'm glad you did. Um, so, you know, I think the company is concerned. I, you know, I would love it if the company engaged with us and said, yeah, you pointed out mistakes we made. Here's what we're doing better. or Here's things we're doing to fix it. Or let's have a real conversation about it. But again, Mm -hmm. it's just their response just shows how they're committed to this pattern of not wanting to see their own faults. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder where the fear is with that. And it's so, it's so interesting. As soon as you mentioned that they sent out this kind of damage control internally, like a week before, uh, MLMs do that. Like when something's coming out for like a pyramid scheme, like a uh, an article or a documentary, they'll be like, hey, everybody. Or they talk about it in like, you know, the little MLM fa- uh, Facebook groups, which is kind of funny. But yeah, it's it's interesting because that's kind of, 
you know, uh, what you do when you don't want people going and doing independent research, you're trying to control the narrative inside and, and everything like that. It's just, it's really interesting because yeah, I, I, I we've seen people like Jack Dorsey and even Susan Wojcicki from YouTube kind of get involved, try to get in, uh, be transparent. And I don't think they do the best job, but it's interesting how much better they're doing than it like Facebook, you know? So, so yeah, but uh, yeah, your, your book was amazing. It covers all this stuff and in interesting details. So do me a favor, let me know where people can find you and Cecilia, cause you are still writing regularly for, you know, <laughs> for yeah, I had an article, job. had yeah. an article yesterday. So Cecilia and I are both on Twitter, um, at Shira F at Cecilia King and Kong, sorry. And, um, you know, support your independent bookstore by there. If not, we're on Amazon as well. Um, and you can find us, uh, weekly in the New York times. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Shira. And yeah, we'll probably be talking soon. Thank you. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Shira Frankel about her brand new book, An Ugly Truth, that she co-authored with Cecilia Kang. Like I said, this book is taking off. Everybody's talking about it. It hit the New York Times bestseller list, and it's a great, great book. So if you found any of this interesting or the conversations or you want to know about some of the behind-the-scenes stories and, you know, what was going on with, like, the employees and people who've worked there and, you know, all that kind of stuff, like, make sure you check out this book it's definitely worth the read and like i mentioned when i was talking with shira like i usually don't read these types of books but they're excellent writers and it really drew me in and they were able to co-author this book during the pandemic which is crazy right so make sure you check out the description down below there is a link to their book as well as their social media so go follow them they're pretty active on twitter and yeah they're they're doing awesome stuff so anyways um yeah if you're new make sure you subscribe make sure you follow if you're on spotify or apple and if you're on apple leave a rating and leave a review and if you thought this episode was interesting uh share it on social media maybe you have friends and family members who don't know about this stuff share it out there with them but all that stuff following subscribing sharing on social media that really helps get the podcast out there we're a newer podcast so it helps get the word out there and all these cool conversations that we're having all right and if you check out in the description down below there are some ways that you can support the podcast if you're interested in doing so i've written a few mental health books they're available on the rewiredsoul.com website you can become a patron or there is also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. I've personally used BetterHelp Online Therapy, so if you're interested in that, check it out. But other than that, make sure you're following me on social media at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. I have a lot of more very, very cool, interesting authors and conversations coming up this week, so make sure you stay tuned, all right? But until next time, have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon.